Well, anyone who's encountered me or Jen in the past week or so might be forgiven for thinking that we've aged somewhat in recent days. And the answer may well be that we recently had our first experience of sole responsibility for our two little grandsons over what was a long 13-hour shift on a miserable, wet day. Now, we are utterly devoted grandparents, but we're level-headed enough to recognise in our grandchildren all the expected characteristics, good and bad, of babies and toddlers. Both boys are immature when compared with adults, but each is developing appropriately day by day. Now, as we continue to look at the messy church in Corinth, we see that one of their problems was that they were spiritually immature. So, verse 1 of chapter 3, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. we can readily see our grandson's immaturity in their size and in their limited capabilities. And the Corinthians' spiritual immaturity was equally evident to Paul. And he spends chapter 3 analysing the nature of that immaturity. He identifies four ways in which they were going wrong. In verses 1 to 4, the issue was wrong diet. You're still worldly. But since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere men? Now, in the first four verses of the chapter... Paul four times uses the word worldly to describe the Christians in Corinth. So what does he mean by this? He's saying that they continued to be dominated by their human nature rather than by God's Holy Spirit. We've seen that chapter 2 is all about how the Christians of Corinth, like the rest of the people of that city, were obsessed with seeking wisdom. Corinth was a port city where Greek, Jewish, Oriental and Christian ideas all existed side by side. People wanted to pick and mix their religion from amongst this array of ideas. They'd not yet learned to walk by faith rather than by sight. Many of the Christians were mixing a bit of Christian faith, what Paul calls milk, with other human insights. And in so doing, they thought themselves oh so sophisticated. But in reality, they were rather like spiritual adolescents. In some respects, they were mature. But in other respects, they were behaving like children. Just as a growing child realises 
that it needs more than milk in order to grow. They realised they needed more than basic understanding or milk in order to flourish. But just like a little child, given a free choice, would gorge on junk food rather than following nutritional guidelines, they sought maturity with their intellectual taste buds, seduced by what Paul later calls the wisdom of the world. It was sweet, tasty, good-looking, and briefly gave a great rush of energy. And as a bonus, it was very popular. But it was feeding their flesh and starving their spirit. The Christians of Corinth were like people drinking polluted tap water when sparkling spring water was theirs for the taking. Now, one of the difficult lessons our three-year-old grandson is having to wrestle with is that he's not the centre of the world. And he's got to learn to get on with other children. Spiritually, the Christians at Corinth needed to learn the same lesson. Because the symptom of their immaturity, which Paul highlights, is their jealousy and quarrelling over different leaders. And this has come about because after Paul spent some 18 months planting and establishing the church in Corinth, he moved on and was replaced by an associate named Apollos. Now, Apollos was a godly man who taught the church with great eloquence and skill. But when he moved on, leadership in the church at Corinth passed to powerful men who were full of ideas, but were lacking in godliness. And these men looked on Paul and Apollos as just two more teachers of wisdom, each with his own followers, rather than fellow servants of Jesus Christ. And in arguing about who was the best teacher of wisdom and who they followed, what they were really arguing about was who was the wisest person in the room. I'm sure that in the not too distant future, my grandsons will be uttering the immortal line, my dad's better than your dad. And that's just what the Christians at Corinth were doing. I'm better than you because I follow Apollos. No, I'm better than you because I follow Paul. We accept that babies need to be fed at one end and cleaned at the other. But unless there are severe medical issues, we don't expect the same of teenagers or adults. A baby that acts like a baby is a joy. An adult that acts like a baby is a tragedy. And a church community where people are not maturing is equally a tragedy. We may be eager to lap up media analysis of the problems of the world. But if we become satisfied with what we have spiritually, and we're less eager to learn more of God and his ways, or to be reminded of what we already know but have ignored, then we cease to grow as Christians. 
If we habitually see ourselves as the centre of the church community, we'll cease to grow as Christians. Well, I didn't get anything from that service. That meeting didn't address my needs. No one showed any interest in me. And I've got to learn that it's not all about me. And if we're content to live on the milk of Bible stories, but shy away from the meaty challenge of Bible teaching, we will also cease to grow as Christians. I may rejoice that Jesus died for my sins, but am I working out in practical ways what it means to say that I died with Christ to sin? Can we have that changed? There we go. Somewhere. Can we move that one on, please? That's it. I may be looking forward to God's final victory over Satan. But am I looking forward to God's victory over Satan in my life, here and now? Can we move that one on, please? Yeah. And I may be happy to learn with other people about God's truth. But am I equally happy to love people more in the light of God's truth? Spiritual milk is accepting by faith that Jesus Christ died to save us from sin and to win for us eternal life. It's as vital as milk is to a baby. But spiritual meat is living out that salvation in our daily circumstances, being willing to be changed more and more into Christ-likeness and seeking to keep ourselves spiritually healthy. I've spent quite a lot of time on that first of the four issues and you'll be delighted to know I'm going to deal more briefly with the other three. In verses 5 to 9, the issue is wrong attitudes. And to illustrate it, Paul uses the example of farming. What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollo watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labour. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. And the key to those verses is the very first word. Paul doesn't ask, who is Apollos? Who is Paul? But rather, what is Apollos? What is Paul? And the answer he gives is, not leaders to be exalted, but servants with different, albeit important, roles to play. John the Baptist understood this in the reading from John's Gospel. He explained to those who questioned him that his role was to serve Jesus, not to be his rival. In a church the size of this one, 
there are many people with different levels of leadership responsibility. We can learn from John the Baptist and Paul alike. Paul wasn't flattered that some Christians in Corinth were loyal to him. And he wasn't upset that some were following other leaders like Apollos. He and Apollos were one in God. And according to chapter 16, Paul urged Apollos to go to Corinth to sort out these problems. What matters is that in all the varieties of ministries which operate under the umbrella of this church, we are united in our desire to serve Christ so that as in Corinth, God may bring growth. I've seen it put this way. It doesn't matter which waiter brings the food to your table. What matters is that God is in charge of the kitchen. In the church of Corinth, we see spiritual immaturity illustrated by wrong diet and wrong attitudes. And then in verses 10 to 17, the issue is wrong materials. And to illustrate it, Paul uses the example of a building to describe the people of God. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what they have built survives, they will receive their reward. If it is burned up, they will suffer loss. They themselves will be saved, but only as those escaping through the flames. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. In Paul's picture language, he says, make sure you do God's work with materials which will withstand fire, gold, silver and costly stones, rather than flimsy materials such as wood, hay or straw. This would be a particularly vivid picture for the people of Corinth, because about a hundred years earlier, the Romans had destroyed their city by fire. The message was for the church in Corinth as a whole. But notice how in verse 10, Paul says, each one should be careful how he builds. It's a message for each one of us as individuals. And of course, appearances can sometimes be deceptive. Our eldest son is a civil engineer working on major construction projects in London. A few years ago, he was working on a project near Trafalgar Square, where the facade of a substantial 18th century building was being retained while the building itself was demolished 
and replaced by state-of-the-art apartments. And one day, as they were demolishing one of the side walls, a young woman came out from the shop in the next building. It turned out that these two apparently substantial buildings shared a single-layer brick wall built on flimsy foundations. And the demolition crew had broken through into the shop's storeroom. Cue hasty revision of architect's plans. We've seen that the Corinthian Christians were trying to build on the foundation of their loyalty to human leaders rather than on God's power. But what equivalent examples might Paul warn Christians in modern Britain about? What about a temptation to reinterpret or water down aspects of the Bible's message which seem foolish or unfair or unpalatable to our modern, sophisticated minds? What about the temptation to blend the Christian gospel with other religious teaching, with the very real danger of emptying the cross and resurrection of Jesus of all its power? What about the temptation to build our faith on human thinking and human endeavour and simply tack on a bit of Christian morality to it? Or what about the temptation constantly to adapt the gospel to changing cultural trends and fads? Realistically, all our work for God, whether it's as individuals or as a church, will be of mixed quality because we are frail humans. But these verses should inspire us to take deep care how we serve God. For followers of Jesus Christ, says verse 15, salvation is secure. But we should regard seriously the scrutiny which our daily service as Christians will face from God. We're not playing games when we follow Christ. Each of us needs seriously to consider two questions. How has God gifted me for his service and how can I use those gifts in his service? And in answering those questions, we must be careful not to delude ourselves. For example, in hearing Phil Young at last Monday's AGM, I was full of admiration as ever, both at his ability to manage money and to communicate clearly about financial issues. I might like to think that this is also my gifting. But I tell you, I'd be deluding myself. And if I had Phil's role, the church would very soon be in a financial mess. And heaven forbid that I should find myself as in verses 16 and 17, not building up God's people, but undermining them through gossip, slander, criticism, jealousy, backbiting, bitterness or immorality. These were all problems in various of the seven churches mentioned at the beginning of the book of Revelation. Those churches were in what is now Western Turkey. And it's a sobering thought that today, throughout the whole of Turkey, there are only a few hundred Christians at most. In verses 18 to 23, 
Paul draws his ideas together. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. You are of Christ and Christ is of God. The final issue he identifies about the immaturity of the Christians in Corinth is about wrong priorities. Oh, it's there. The root of their immaturity was their pursuit of intellectual worldly wisdom rather than true godliness. Now, intellectual striving can and does produce real insight for the benefit of the human race. But as any who's had dealings with the world of academia will know, it often also produces petty disputes. It can also be exclusive, looking down on people with different views. So Greek philosophers described those who had no interest in philosophy as fools. But Paul turns the idea around in verse 18. He says that they and all who philosophise about God without reference to Christ, they are the real fools. The Christians of Corinth pursued human wisdom in a way, as a way of explaining everything there was to explain. But Paul's message is, it's not a matter of knowing that you've got it all together. You haven't. It's a matter of knowing that somewhere it is all together and that you're part of it. There's an ancient proverb which says, those who don't know, and who don't know that they don't know, are fools. Avoid them. Those who don't know, and who know that they don't know, are wise. Teach them. So in summary, the message of this chapter to the immature Christians of the messy church in Corinth is this. Take your eyes off other people. Keep your eyes on Christ and work with him in building his church. And Paul concludes in verse 23. All things are yours. In other words, as Christians, you are free. But you are of Christ. So with that freedom comes responsibility.